and welcome to Unloved Sequels, the podcast that brings you a blow-by-blow critique of Hollywood's worst-rated sequels. You know, the ones that some people think should never have been made. We're your hosts. Michael, say hello. Hello! Oh, you're very perky today. You just had your morning coffee. No, I just realised that we hit 20,000 downloads, so we've hit a new limit. And I'm Claire. In this episode, we're discussing a musical genius and his obsession with the beautiful young singer who was his muse. And that's just the composer. Michael, we are stretching the remit of this podcast further than ever before in this episode (laughs) by covering something that technically is not a movie. Please explain. This week, Andrew Lloyd Webber takes us from theatre to seaside, from acclaimed musical to box office flop, from Ghost of the Opera to Freak Show host, this is Love Never Dies. I can't believe we've managed to crowbar this in. I love that we've managed to crowbar this in, but it's, wow. But first of all, Claire, (laughs) I would like to apologise to you because during our James Bond episode that you just brought up, you mentioned that you were tired of villains with facial disfigurements. I know, I know, (laughs) I know, it's such an old fucking trope, and And here we are doing it again, I realised this as I was watching, I was like, for fuck's sake, even more (laughs) bad guys with facial disfigurements, this is not, I mean this is a bugbear of mine, is he a bad guy in this, is he the bad guy in this, yeah, to be discussed, anti-hero, and yeah, anti-hero, maybe. That I think that was the purpose of this show. So let's get started. Yeah. So Love Never Died opened in London with with mainly negative reviews from across the board. Mm. It was shit. It no one liked it. It was like <laughs> I've got a really nice quote for later on. I'm going to share with you. I tried doing a deep dive into this, and it was quite an interesting kind of look because why you look up movies you don't really get that information about shows. And I think that's a real shame. Like, I think Wikipedia should have how much the show costs and how much, like, you know, how much money it takes. And, you know, at the end of it run, it made mm. this much cash and stuff. But the figures available for things like this on the West End, unless the show's been running for years and years and years or on Broadway, that information is really not available. So give me a second. I've tried to grab some figures. I hope they make sense to everyone. <laughs> So looking back around this, there was speculation that the production of this came to roughly about 20 million. And if you take that in concept for a movie, not bad. You know, it's probably one, it's like filming one set though. So it's quite a lot of money for one set of yeah. the film. So, because roughly a normal musical on grand level is usually about 10 to 13 million. And that's just yeah. pre-production. That is not day-to-day running of the show. That is just literally getting the workshops going and buying the materials, getting the costumes together, getting the set together. So I was a bit like, oh. So then I started going, where else does it go from here? Because 20 million to make a Broadway show, that's just like a bargain to me. But the cost of tickets today, whoa. You're like, they make a must like that so quickly when it comes to cost of Broadway and West End tickets. So, But but I found an interview with Andrew Lloyd Webber going back to 2016. So I think the cost of living is a little bit more up since mm. then. But back yes, then, but... 
He said the physical running cost of one of these theatres was about 38000 per week. But still, the cost of theatre yeah. price tickets, not bad. But then I found an article from the Financial Times, roughly in the same time period, that estimates the total weekly costs of a top musical is about 150000 to 250000 250, pounds a week. Because I think when Andrew Lloyd yeah. Webber was mentioning it, he was probably just trying to make it sound more financially viable. He was probably thinking, oh, the cost of running the theatre, not the show. So I assume... Well, that... this is the thing. It depends how much you're taking into account because I'm assuming, I don't I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming that on a long-running musical, as mm. resident in a venue for a long period of time, there's the cost of running the show, there's the, yeah. sort of the, you know, the power to turn on the light, and maintenance of the set and yada 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 there's yeah. the cost of the cast and the crew their wages yeah but there's also depending on who owns the show and who owns the venue there'll be either the cost of hiring the venue yeah. which then carries the cost of staffing the venue mm -hmm. or if it's all owned by the same company it's the cost of all the staff to run so it's not just the staff on the stage it's the backstage crew it's the day-to-day -day staff of the venue as well, your front of house staff, not just on the night, but people who run the box office. And there are a lot yeah. of other costs. And just the cost of running the building, having the lights on in the building for the people to do the work. Yeah. So there are a lot of things that, you know, the average audience member looks at a show and thinks, wow, that set must have cost a lot. But then there's so many other costs that can come Aspects of with it as well. Yeah. So, so I think it depends how many of those things you factor in, how much your figure is going to yeah. come to. So I did feel like Adrian Roberber was giving himself a bit of a like, oh, 38,000. I think it's more. So what I did was I took the 150K in UK pounds mm. and I decided to times that by 52 weeks a year because even though there's certain days the shows don't run, the theatre still runs because there's repairs to do, the lights yeah, run, yeah. like you said. So to run a show for 52 weeks of the year at 150K is about 7.8 million. Mm -hmm. In US dollars, that's about, for our US listeners, it's about 9.4 million per a year to run the show. Well, for mm. me, it still seems like a bit of a still because the cost of tickets are, is ridiculous. Oh, Dave. The cost of theatre tickets, I don't know how Broadway is at the moment, but the West End oh. is obscene. Yeah, you look like I went to see, we went to go and see, uh, me and my husband went to go and see uh, Funny Girl on Broadway about a month and a half ago, two months ago. And those tickets mm. were like $350 per a ticket. And they were like, what, they were, yeah. they were orchestra but they're a little bit bad but still 350 for a ticket it's, it's insane really, it's insane for like two hours worth of entertainment it is ridiculous yeah. black do you know how many seats the apollo theater had where you worked when you were working with wicked it, oh, i don't remember exactly but it's in the region of 2000 but apollo victoria is one of the biggest venues there aren't many yeah that are as big as that like so um not quite, but yeah 2000 but the apollo victoria palladium i think is about the same um, but most West End shows are, most West End venues are smaller. But that's just like, if you times that by those ticket prices, they're easily making a profit back. Oh, gotcha. They, they make out that they're struggling. And oh, yeah, because like... even the cheap seats up on the ceiling are like 50 quid back of the upper circle these days. Yeah. And a free yeah. nosebleed because you're so high up. <laughs> I get vertigo. Oh, where am I? Vertigo. Mm. Uh, so... I used to have to hold on. When I was in the upper circle at the Apollo Victoria, I would be holding on to the bars 
to go up and down the steps between those rows. That's nuts. But back to Love Never Dies. So it opened in the West End. So let's go back to the original production of it. Mm. So it opened in previews on February the 22nd, 2010. It went into opening. So if anybody doesn't know how theatre works, there's a period of time, what's like a grace period for shows. That's like a preview where they get to do sell tickets Mm. and they get to meet the audience and get to know the show and they get comfortable with the show before the critics come in and review it. So they'll go from preview, then they'll have an opening And the tickets tend to be a bit cheaper. Do they? preview. (laughs) Now these days. Every theatre, well, I I never worked in the West End during previews, but every independent venue I've worked in, the preview, because the show is not quite finished. Yeah. Because the thing is with live performance, so much of it is about the the relationship with the audience as well and the response from the audience. And you can rehearse a show and think mm. there's going to be a laugh there. There's going to be applause here. The audience will do this at this point. And then you perform it and it's completely different. So yeah. part of the preview period is about finding that relationship with the audience as well and what works and what doesn't. And so the prices do tend to be a bit lower during mm. preview than they would be after press night. I remember seeing... Um... Wicked in previews when it first opened in the West End. Medina Menzel was in it. And when it came to the, they did not have it under the bag because they were just like, there's a scene where they go to the Emerald City and the banner came down and it got twisted. And Medina Menzel had to jump up as Alphabet and straighten it. And then when the people came out and go, Welcome to the Emerald City. And those big topsy turvy guys come out, all those characters from the movie. Yeah, yeah. One of them fell over and couldn't get back up. And Adina Menzel and the Glinda at the time had to literally pick him up and put him on his feet again. He was just on his back like a turtle stuck for about five minutes. It was a hot mess, but I loved it. I loved it. You do get get some good stories out of theatre previews. Oh, it's awesome. Uh, So it opened on March the 9th, 2010, and then closed. Closed in December for some rework for about a week and then reopened. But then officially closed August the 27th, 2011. This is not the run that Andrew Lloyd Webber was expecting. So that's what, a year and a bit? 15 months? 18 15 months? months? Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Ouch. So then, then he... 20 million like, pounds he spent on a show that ran for a year and a half. Yep. And then he then, then it went to Australia. And that's what we're discussing today. We are discussing the yes. Melbourne production of Love Never Dies that got released with a small theatrical run and also was mainly designed for home release. So they took it to Australia, they stripped it down, they reworked it again, and that opened for about a year and ran between two venues. But then because of the improved critics' reviews from the other side of the world, mm-hmm. Andrew Lloyd Webber decided to get this recorded. So they stripped it back a little bit more and cherry-picked the best bits mm. out of it and made a DVD Blu-ray release that also has a small theatrical run. The perfor- the the recording that we we're talking about went into cinemas slash theatres on the 28th of February and just ran for a week until the 7th of March. Had a very, very small window, about this time of year. So well, we're at that window now. Mm. Um, it opened in the US in theatres for twenty the tw- around the 23rd of May, so a little bit longer. But internationally, during that week's showing around the world, not in America, just internationally. It made about 173,000. Not great. Mm. It's actually terrible. Like you, you can't even make a million back on like this, like a claim. That's, yeah. He probably went into it going, everybody will want to watch this. They'll run to the box office. No one went. Because by then, this thing had a bad taste in everybody's mouth. You know, most English speaking yeah. countries 
were aware how it failed on, on the West End. So when it had this small theatrical yeah. run in the movie theatres, it just didn't do anything. But Andrew Lloyd Webber has said he's very, 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 very proud of this production in Melbourne. And he's happy to close the chapter on Love Never Dies as this recording. It has had productions in Copenhagen, Tokyo, Hamburg, and a small US tour, and a concert production in Vienna. It was announced in 2020 that it was going to have the Melbourne production was going to go on a world tour in 2021, and then COVID hit, so that got cancelled. Mm, yeah. So here we are with this bastard child of Phantom of the Opera. And now I'm going to give you everybody over to Claire Harris who will now talk for the next three hours about theatre. You are welcome. Look, I have pruned my notes and pruned and pruned. The, the thing is, there's a lot to say because the production yes. period, which which you've hinted at for this show, was a hot mess. Oh my! So God. there is a lot to talk about. So everything I'm going to say is by no means the full story. There's a lot more. There's, if you have a Google around, there's um, there's lots of information on Wikipedia about the production history of this show. There's lots of fan sites with information as well, if you really want to deep dive into it. But um, I will kind of give you a potted little history of the show. I'm going to start off by just quickly whizzing through some of the key cast in this production that we're talking about. I'm yep. also going to talk a little bit about the... Um, so in terms of comparison, in, in, when we're looking at it as a sequel, we have looked primarily at the Royal Love Albert Hall Gala performance of the 25th anniversary performance of Phantom of the Opera mm -hmm. because we felt like it was the closest comparison that we could make. There's no um, there's no film of the stage production of the Phantom of the Opera. There is the movie of the Phantom of the Opera <laughs> from 2004. It exists. We might not want it to, but it exists. I but love it. That's I a Hollywood it. movie. Yeah. Do you? I do love it. I do love it. Well, congratulations to you. Do you? Yeah, I really do like I think it's a great film. Okay. But I, well, anyway, I do that's not what we're weird, here to talk about. I do have a weird hard on for Joel Schumacher movies, so it is kind of, I know. mean, I like Joel Schumacher movies, but that anyway, we decided that we weren't going to compare to that because it didn't feel like a fair comparison because that's a Hollywood movie compared to a recording of a stage production. So we felt like the closest comparison we could make was that 25th anniversary gala performance that was filmed. And again, it was released on DVD and yada. It didn't have a, a cinematic release, um, but it, it, it had not, a DVD and blue release. A, so I think I think it had a small run in the theatres. Oh, did it? Uh, yeah, I think it had like oh, a wee window play. like this. But we couldn't compare it to the John wow. Schumacher movie anyway, because in the movie, her gravestone reads from 1854 to 1972. Oh, well, look, there's enough messing that. around. <laughs> Yeah, there's enough messing around with timelines between these two shows without factoring in the changes that they made for the Schumacher movie with the dates. They completely changed the dates in that movie. So that's a whole oh, other thing. Yeah, so there's there's no cast crossover between those two film productions that we've been talking about, mostly because they're from opposite sides of the world. But Ramin Karamlu, who played the Phantom in the 25th anniversary gala of the Phantom of the Opera, was also the original Phantom for Love Never Dies in its London yeah. run. Although he, the Love Never Dies came before this particular gala of Phantom. So he did, he first played Phantom as in Love Never Dies and then went on to play Phantom in the West End and did it for this gala. He also actually in the Schumacher movie was Christine's father. 
Yes, in a small scene. Who we don't see in the musical, but uh, he he's in the movie. We don't see him in the movie, do we? We hear him? I can't remember. I watched the movie a few days ago. We see the a picture of him. Oh, yes, and yes. We see him in his deathbed. There's a picture of him at the grave. And the, and yes. A, you see him in the um, so that's Ramin Karamli, who plays the Phantom in the 25th anniversary gala of the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, Sierra Boges also was Christine in the gala performance of Phantom of the Opera and was the London Christine for Love Never Dies. And also Liz Robinson was, Liz Robertson, I beg your pardon, was Madame Giry in both. She was in the, the gala of Phantom and she was Madame Giry in Love Never Dies. So there was some crossover in casting in London. Yeah. But that's not what we see in this recording because it's the Australian cast. That said, Sharon Millerchip, who plays Meg in the Melbourne production of Love Never Dies was also the original Meg in the Australian production of Phantom of the Opera. So they did have a bit of casting crossover within the Australian production as well. In terms of other cast, I'm not going to go through the whole list, but we've got Ben Lewis playing the Phantom, who I think I'm going to refer to as the Phantom while I'm talking. But if I talk about Eric, I mean the Phantom. He's never named in either of the shows, but in the original book, that the Phantom of the Opera is based on. He is named as Eric. Such a weird um, so name. If I suddenly, if I suddenly talk about name. Eric, that's who I mean. Yeah. So we've got Ben Lewis playing the Phantom. We've got Anna O'Byrne playing Christine. We've got Simon Gleason playing Raoul. We've got Sharon Millerchip, as I mentioned, playing Meg. We've also got Jack Lyle playing Gustav, who is Christine's son, who is a new character. Most of the characters in Love Never Dies, the, the primary characters, are characters we've seen before in Phantom of the Opera. Gustav is the only new principal character. There are some sort of secondary characters that are new. Gustav is the only new, what I would deem to be a principal character. And he is fantastic. In it. He, is, he like... is fantastic in it. He, in my opinion, one of the best things in the show. I love the performances actually from everyone in, in this show, but I think he's amazing. I'm going to talk more about this later. The musical was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber with lyrics by Glenn Slater and the book is credited to Andrew Lloyd Webber, Glenn Slater, Frederick Forsyth, more of which later, and Ben Elton. Do American audiences know who Ben Elton is? You, you've just seen my face when I'm just saying the name Ben Elton. I don't know how well known Ben Elton is in America. In the UK, he's quite well known. He wrote a lot of comedy for TV in the 80s and 90s. He's done some comedy movies. Towards the end of the 90s into the early thousands, he moved into doing the book for some musical, which I found a bit of a weird shift for him. The ones that spring to mind besides Love Never Dies, he did the book on We Will Rock You, which is a show that a lot of people love. I'm not one of them, but a lot of people do. He also did the... But again, I saw it. That's another show that got reworked. Um, The critics didn't love it. I went quite early in its run. I think I went after previews, but quite early in the run and I did not love it. And it's had a bit of work, work. And by all accounts, it's a much better show now. Ben Elton also did the book for The Beautiful Game, that famous football musical. Did that go to America? I don't know if it did, but it's another Andrew Lloyd Webber musical and Ben Elton had done the book on that which is how he ended up doing the book on this was that based on a film or based on a book that also had a film made about it and I think it It was uh, remade into a baseball movie over here with it did oh yes with Drew Barrymore Barrymore and Jimmy whatever Jimmy the one who does Saturday night I can't remember the guy's name my 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 dive was deep into this show but not (laughs) deep enough to get me as far as 
this movie. Give me but Fallon. Yes, Give me it got Fallon. made as a yes. It was uh, there was that was the American version of the movie. There was also a movie, a British movie made that was about football or soccer with um, Colin Firth. So yeah, that's how Ben Elton kind of got involved in this. Charles Hart, who was the lyricist on Phantom of the Opera, was later brought in to help with some of the rewrites. So he's also credited for additional lyrics on this show. Get comfy, folks. Grab your cup of tea. Get a biscuit because it's going to be a little while. I'm going to talk you through as quickly as I can the production history on this show. So for context, The Phantom of the Opera opened in the West End in October 1986. And as early as, as 1990, Andrew Lloyd Webber was thinking about plans for a possible sequel. He started collaborating with the author Frederick Forsyth on the project, but the project kind of fell apart because Andrew Lloyd Webber felt like the ideas that they were coming up with together weren't really going to translate well into a musical. So they kind of parted ways. Frederick Forsyth, though, continued with his work on the story and published a book in 1999 called The Phantom of Manhattan. And a lot of people think, and to be fair, because a lot of places say that Love Never Dies is based on the novel The Phantom of Manhattan, which is not technically true. They both came from the same initial idea, the same collaboration, but it's like they went in different directions. So like the left hand of this story is The Phantom of Manhattan. The right hand is Love Never Dies. So there are a lot of differences between the two a lot of people say oh it's very loosely based it's not very loosely based they were just born of the same idea but then their creators took them in separate direction Andrew Lloyd Webber came back to the project in 2006 looking at uh, potential writers and directors and eventually in 2007 he uh, approached Ben Elton to work on the synopsis for the sequel and it was very much more focused on the characters from the original show than Forsyth's treatment had been so that's how they ended up working together on it. Interestingly, the sequel got delayed because Andrew Lloyd Webber had been working on his his Clavinova, on his digital piano, uh, working on the score, and um, his kitten ran across the piano and deleted it all, the entire score for Love Never Dies. He had no backups. He had to completely rewrite. That's like my the dog I know. my dog at my at home work. I'm like, bullshit. Yeah, this might just be a story that he came up with after the event to explain why some of it's a bit chunky. He's like, oh well, I just had to try and remember what it was because the cat jumped on the clavinova. Anyway, the intention had been originally that this show was going to open simultaneously in Lon- London, New York, and Shanghai. But by early 2009, they decided that they would open it initially in London at the Adelphi Theatre, and then it would go to Toronto and then transfer from Toronto to Broadway and then in Shanghai. The the reviews were not good. I'm going to read you a bit of a review from Henry Hitchin writing in the Evening Standard. And he said that, while Lloyd Webber's music is at times lavishly operatic, the tone is uneven. There are no more than a couple of songs that promise to live in the memory. The duets don't soar and the ending is insipid. Admirers of Phantom are likely to be disappointed and there's not enough here to entice a new generation of fans. Hitchens also commented that the story is largely predictable and flimsy. The chief problem is the book. It lacks psychological plausibility. Worse, it lacks heart. There's little pathos or emotional tension. There is also scarcely a moment of humour. The lyrics are prosaic and the flickers of light relief are merely confusing. Ouch. That's harsh. Would you like some Savlon for that burn? It's harsh. But remember, this is for the London production. This isn't the this is what they said about the original before it got reworked into what we've seen in this recording. So it I didn't see that production. But I mean, by all accounts, it was 
pretty turgid. There was um, the the headline in in all the the reviews was they were calling it "Paint Never Dries" because it was such a dull show. So that gives you a kind of an idea of where we were working from. Because of this, the Broadway production got cancelled. This show has never run on Broadway. What's a shame because I and really as you think, said, they. I think this could. I think if they wanted this to be successful. Broadway was the place they should have opened it because I think American audience would be far more accepting to it. The fact that it was based in Coney yeah. Island meant that it had a relationship yeah. with the with the the actual contents of the show, and I just think opening the West End was such a rookie error in the first place. Yeah, I think you might be right, and it was because of the the reviews for London. It just it, all the financial backers pulled out. I think yeah. had they done it the other way around, I think you're right. I think the American audience may well have got more on board with the show in the first place. Um, or he could have just done what he'd originally intended and opened them simultaneously. Yeah. But then if, I don't know, I think the the reworked version that we've watched in this recording would probably work in America. But again, the, with the amount of time that's passed and the just the, the negative vibe that this show carries now, I, yeah. I just don't think it's ever going to get the support that it would need to be mounted. If it costs 20 million to stage it in London, how much is it going to cost to stage it in Broadway? Um, I just don't think that's ever going to happen for it, unfortunately. They did have those plans, as you said, in 2020 to embark on the world tour, which then got dropped because of COVID. And then the tour was going to open as a resident show in Toronto, uh, late 2020 into 2021. But again, because of COVID, it had to be delayed. And neither of those productions ever came to fruition. Um, I think... This show's time has passed now. Well, I don't know because Broadway currently was supposed to the the Broadway version of Phantom of the Opera um, is currently on its thirty fifth anniversary, and it was supposed to close in January this year. And when they announced yes, it was closing, and it's had it a little had, reprieve, hasn't it? They've extended it. It's packed out. You can't get a ticket for Love or Money, and it's now been extended to April. So if he's going to do Love Never Dies, this is the year he needs to open it on board. Now is the time. Are you listening, Andrew Lloyd Webber? Now is the time. You heard it here first. Yes. We think so. We don't have any money to fund it. You'll have to find people (laughs) richer than us if you want to make it happen. But spiritually, we will support you. So, okay, if you think this show could run on Broadway, why? What, what What do you like about this show? What works for you? Do you know what? I'm going to say something that you, you're going to be really upset for. But I actually prefer Love Never Dies. No! Um, I do. <gasps> I do. I feel... I'm reassessing I, our entire friendship. I feel like Love... I feel like Phantom's been put on a pedestal. I think it's very of its time. I think it's very yeah. 1980s. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, the sound of the music and things like that. Like, I enjoy musical theatre. But I actually... When I first saw this, I wasn't... I'm not a Phantom fanatic so in my mind if andrew Lowell wants to say that these two characters fucked they fucked i don't it doesn't bother me mm, well you know we'll talk about that it just doesn't i don't oh i don't know how to put this but i actually really like love never dies i find it far more memorable than phantom i i really like the music in it i really like the fact that it's a very small it feels like a smaller production it feels like there's yes. five main characters there isn't everything going on. There isn't overdramatic. And I, I think it annoys me more that people can't accept what happens in Love Never Dies, but accepts all the shit that happens in Phantom of the Opera as okay. You know, like, like people go like, well, that like would never... Like what? 
like the whole concept that he watched Christine grow up as a child and no one bothered that he had kind of like groomed this child and now he's in love with her. Oh yeah, no, that is creepy as fuck. That is creepy. But then, or, or the aspect that he's bribing the owners of the opera house for money to, and wants that box divided otherwise he's going to cause havoc. But people can't accept that these two characters met in between shows and had intercourse. I'm like, why does it bother you? Why, why, why does it bother you? Characters well, change, because it, change. Because there's so many ways that it's implausible. But we'll we'll save that for when it's my turn to talk not, about things that I don't yeah. like. But I don't think it is implausible because it's a character. It's a fictional character. They can do what they want with it. Yes. You might not like it. Yes. You might not like what they've chosen to do with it, but just go with the ride. Yes. And I yes. just go I agree with you on that. I do agree with that. And particularly because this is this is the same creator as well. Yes. It's his show. He if if he writes this sequel and says this is the sequel we kind of have to accept that because it's his show it's not like some randoms come along and done their own version of this is what I think would have happened next and everyone will go yeah but you're not Andrew Lloyd Webber so get in the sea this is Andrew Lloyd Webber it's his show it's his property so I guess yes there is a very strong argument if that's what he says is what happened next then that's what happened next I think also the audience fell in love with Michael Crawford and Michael Crawford's Phantom, I think that he's, Absolutely. he's his character was so romanced. It was more romanced. People wrote fan fiction about the Phantom. You know, I think people thought like mm. I think when he went to make Phantom of the Opera, people were supposed to walk away with that with disgust for the Phantom and and love for Christine. But what happened is he just made an anti-hero and everybody fell in love with the Phantom and felt sorry for the Phantom in the end. He was mistreating yeah. him, even though he's the bad guy he's really not the bad guy in it so when he came to write the musical he was like well the audience want the fans to be the hero let's make him the hero let's make yeah. him the victim in this show and that's what he did and then the audience are like why have you made him the victim you're like well that's what you wanted that was like people craved the phantom afterwards people didn't really crave. he wasn't like the nosferatu phantom from the 1940s movies going up and down staircase go with a coke in front of his yeah, face yeah yeah he was, they turned the character into a romance character. So, yes. you know. I, I can hear that. So that's what he gave you in the sequel. And people were just like, eh, it's not what I wanted. Throw the fuck up. Might not be what you wanted, <laughs> but there might be people that might like it. Fair enough. Well, this is the thing, because Andrew Lloyd Webber always said, there was a bit of a kind of a, is it a sequel? Is it a not sequel? He, he mm. it is a sequel. Obviously, it's a sequel. And he did say this himself, like, clearly it is a sequel, but he wrote it very much to be a standalone show. You don't need to have seen Phantom of the Opera in order to understand Love Never Dies was his intention. And I think he's achieved that. I don't think, I mean, yeah. I, I do know Phantom of the Opera, but I I don't think I would have come out of Love Never Dies thinking there are bits of this story missing because I haven't seen the Phantom of the Opera. So in that respect absolutely it stands and actually for me it would work better as a standalone musical I would prefer yeah. it if it weren't part of the Phantom and Christine universe because I I as much as I do agree with a lot of what you just said I am one of those people who sat there going well firstly the timelines don't add up because in Phantom of the Opera it's something like um I think Phantom of the Opera is set in 1881 yeah. And uh, Love Never Dies is supposedly 10 years later in 1895. Well, that doesn't add up. 
the prologue of Phantom of the Opera, which is the bit that sets up the flashback, which is the entire story, because Phantom of the Opera set starts with this prologue which is set in the future of the phantom of the opera which i think from what i can gather is set in 1919 yeah at which point raul is is old and we are to we're led to believe that christine has died we it doesn't say it explicitly but we assume that by this time christine has died that's set in 1919 so if love never dies is in 1895 we're talking what 25 years later after all the events of love never dies raul goes back to the opera house in paris and starts buying shit from there to remind him of christine after everything that happens in love never dies i don't think so that does not make sense to me and there is the whole thing of we have to address it this relationship between christine and phantom the the fact that for gustav to be his son they have to have had sex and when is this supposed to have happened it can't have happened during the storyline of Phantom of the Opera, because we actually only see them together twice in the whole story. And it doesn't seem plausible that at either of those points that they would have had sex. And that if they had at either of those points, I don't think it would have been consensual. I don't think it would have been this great romantic, passionate moment that they duet about in Love Never Dies. But it doesn't have to be because people that get kidnapped by but, their kidnappers all the time fall in love with them because they get obsessed with them. Well, yes, there is this there there is the element of Stockholm syndrome, which I think is very much at play in this situation. Oh, yeah. But I it, it just doesn't seem plausible that that happened during the narrative of the Phantom of the Opera. But then if it happened after the narrative of the Phantom of the Opera, that means that Christine must have known this whole 10 year period that the Phantom had survived, which it is implied that she didn't know. So it doesn't quite add up. Really, and actually, in I the never original got the, production, I d- I got the impression that I never got the impression that she thought the Phantom was dead within Love Never Dies. There is a line, and I'm trying to think which version of the recording it is. I think it's in the Australian cast recording. There is a line where she says to him something about "You let me think you were dead for ten years," which doesn't make sense but if she's dead, seen him after. But- it, this is the thing. There are there are plot holes. But if um, I never saw a friend for in ten the London... years and there was no Facebook or any communication, and they never reached out, and this is before social media, most of that time I would have thought they were dead if they ever reached out in ten years. If I was trying to contact them, and she had no way of contacting him, so she might mm. be like, mm, "I haven't seen you. You weren't at the opera house. The opera house was closed. We didn't hear from you. You were obsessed with me, and suddenly then you just left me on the opera house floor after you shagged me, and then disappeared for ten years." <laughs> He might have gone and topped himself, or yeah. who knows? She yeah. might have, like, you know, the only time, two times I've seen Phantom by the time I had watched Love Never Dies is the Joel Schumacher movie. So mm-hmm. that's quite over the top and trashy. Was that the first time you saw any form of Phantom? Yes. You hadn't seen it on stage prior to that? No. Okay, and the th- fine. And the so that makes of- sense of you not minding it as much as me, I guess. And then the other time I saw it was... The Phantom of the Opera, the Las Vegas experience. So, I oh think... my god! <laughs> so, my experience of Phantom, I have seen it now on Broadway, and I've seen it at the West End. But at the time, I had only seen the Vegas. The Vegas production was mind-blowingly amazing. I just want to say, like, it was. It was inside. The, I think it was a Venetian theater in Vegas, and they had this amazing theater. And when you walked in, they had the ginormous chandelier. It was the biggest chandelier ever developed for Phantom of the Opera. But all the walls were like 
covered it in like like it was an actual clothed down theater. So you went and sat in the clothed down theater, and as they mm. start up and they go, you go, they go and go, let's illuminate, and they put the chandelier together. And the chandelier yeah, yeah, up. yeah. All the outside, so the outside walls, the fabric. I'm getting tingles even thinking about it. All the outside walls, all the fabric got sucked into the walls to reveal all these mannequins, oh. animatronic mannequins in full 18th century costumes come to life and start popping out the stage and all that. It was mind-blowingly fucking fantastic. And I've never experienced anything like oh it in God. my life. And the, Vegas, like, it, baby. Oh my, it was so Vegas, but so phantom. And all these mannequins came to life and started clapping and animatronics. Oh my God, it was amazing. So love never dies. <laughs> Production values are slight different. Yeah, it was never for me. Phantom was never the masterpiece of craftsmanship of theatre that a lot of people have with it. Yeah, a lot of people saw it in the nineties. Well, I think this is the thing because I think a lot of people, I think most people, fall into one of two camps, and you seem to kind of straddle a little bit. But you, I think you're more in the okay. It's a thing that happened. Whatever. It's a show. Yeah. And then there are people, and I'm kind of more into this camp, who were so impacted by it. When Phantom first came out, it really struck me. And it it had such a huge impact. I wanted to be Christine so much as a kid. Does that surprise you? No, (laughs) not really. No. (laughs) Um, We did a a thing at school where we wrote to Jim will fix it. Yeah. And... I asked Jim to fix it for me to be Christine in Phantom of the Opera. Um, you wrote, and Jim did not fix to it for me. A groomer to put you in a well. Show this is the thing. This irony. Irony. Now, <laughs> knowing what we know now, I'm quite glad that Jim did not fix it for me to be anything. <laughs> but you know, in 1987, we did not know what we now know about yeah. Jim will fix it and anything to do with. <laughs> him <laughs> so but that was you know loads of kids our age wrote to Jim will fix it and that was my I wanted to be Christine and I listened to that music all the way through my childhood I bizarrely I never actually saw the show on stage until I was in my early 20s and I think I've only seen it on stage once yeah but it's just it's one of those things that I don't think I'm a huge fan and then I put the music on and I'm like actually I love this show it just brings out because it I guess it had that impact on me as a child when yeah. you you have that experience when you're so young, just hearing the music just takes you back to that feeling, and it has that really strong feeling inside me again still. So, what is I'm your not favorite sure objectively song that it's in Phantom? What from the Phantom from Phantom original. of the Opera? I like. I mean, I like the Phantom of the Opera, the song. I like the point of no return. The point if of we're no go a little return. bit left, left mainstream, I and I like Prima Donna for reasons that. I will discuss when really? we talk about what we like in this show. Kind of. I do. I don't think it's an amazing song, but I, okay, I'll mention it now. Um, I like, um, I love counter melodies and sort of duets, trios, quartets. If there's lots of voices doing their own little thing, like in One Day More, when you've got all those little, everyone's doing One their own bits more. from earlier in the show. But those sorts of songs where you've got lots of voices doing different things, like in Prima Donna. Um, I quite like music and there's lots going on. So I guess they're probably my favourites from that show. But it had such an impact on me that then watching this, I was very much, well, well, that doesn't make sense. They've changed the relationship. They've changed a lot of the characters. And so there were lots of things. I think if I'd watched it as a standalone show and it not been the Phantom characters, I think I would probably have been much more accepting of the storyline. But the fact that they've changed so much of the dynamic between the characters, I think it didn't... 
work as well for me. I got the impression that Angela Weber sat down and wrote this musical for people that had gone to the theatre to go and see Phantom 20 years ago and enjoyed it and then moved on. I don't think this show was written for fanatic fans of Phantom. No, that had seen I think you're right. Time. I think you're right. But I think that was a mistake on his part, because if yeah. you're going to write a show for fans of a show you've already written, write it for the ones that keep going back and spending more and more and more money. Don't try and tempt back the old ones. They're already down the road watching Wicked or whatever. Don't. They're not coming back. You need to to be investing in because they're not going to stop seeing Phantom. If they if they're going to see it again and again and again, they're still going to carry on seeing it again and again and again, and they'll come and see this as well. So I think I think that was an error in judgment on his part, not taking more care to make the dates work out, to make the the plot line work out for people who know the previous show as well as a lot of people do. Yeah, I think. I agree. I agree. Before we move on, there are a couple of things that I do want to really flag because I think I've, I feel like I've been quite negative about this show. There is a lot in this show that I really like. The performances, I think, oh, are brilliant. There's not a bad think, apple. There is not a bad apple. There's not. The whole cast, I've, in my notes, I've written performances are by and large good. And then I'm like, well, who did I think wasn't good if I've written by and large? No one. I liked all of them. I liked... Um, all of the performances. I want to do a shout out to um, Jack Lyle, who plays Gustav in this show. He is fantastic. Amazing. He is 10 years old in this show. And this part is insane for a kid. Yes. Um, and actually, because we both watched this show separately and came out of it going, oh, my God, that kid was amazing. We actually got in touch with him. <gasps> and I managed to get onto Zoom with Jack Lyle. For a little chat, would you oh like God, to I'm hear so what we talked yes. about? Yes, play the tape, Claire. I'm really excited to be talking to Jack Lyle, who played Gustav in the recording of the 2010 Melbourne Theatre production of Love Never Dies. Jack, thanks so much for joining me today. Michael sends his apologies that he can't join us. He's traveling at the moment. This always happens, by the way. Anytime we have a guest on, Michael's weirdly, oh, I'm traveling at the moment. Claire, can you do the interview? It's fine. Goodness I'm very happy to do it. And it, to be honest, it's his loss. So it is. Uh, poor Michael. Yeah, it, poor Michael. It, just <laughs> the logistics of trying to work out three different time zones because I'm in the UK and you're in Australia and he's. I think he's in Bora Bora or somewhere, and so I have very oh. little sympathy for him at all. What a lucky, lucky lad. I know, I know. It's a hard life, isn't it? Anyway, Absolutely. so it's, you're stuck with me, I'm afraid, in grim, Not cold February London while Michael's <laughs> enjoying Bora Bora. But anyway, so Michael and I would love to know a bit more about your relationship with Love Never Dies. Um, what was your background, I guess? Let's start at the beginning. What was your background prior to being cast in the show and how did you come to be in it? Sure, sure. So I, I mean, look, it all kind of started, um, I was watching my sister in a musical theatre class one Saturday morning and I was sitting up the back because I didn't want to join because I was super shy and scared and I can't remember what song they were singing, but the musical director stopped everyone and said, stop, 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 you're all, you're all doing it wrong. You gotta, you gotta sing it like, like he's singing it. Any, any point to me? And I was like, what? I didn't. I was, I was singing along. I don't know if it was right or not, but apparently it was good. And this uh, musical director, uh, name was Greg, um, encouraged me to go and study at the National Boys Choir of Australia. So, and uh, I studied there for I think two, maybe three years. And just as I was about to leave, because it was, 
oh man, it was about an hour and a half drive there every week. And I was so lucky. I had the best support, I had the best family that would drive me there. My nan would drive me there every week and we'd have these awesome adventures. But it was just getting too much for us all. So we decided that I'd, I'd stop there. But they very luckily sent one extra newsletter via email. And on that email was an audition for this new musical written by Andrew Lloyd Webber. And mum was like, you should do it. I was like, cool. Who's Andrew Lloyd Webber? <laughs> I was like, oh I had no God. idea. <laughs> Sorry, and, that uh, sounded really judgmental. I wasn't being judgmental, but it was no, ju- that was no. just like a mind blown. There are people who, of course, because you're well, so much younger. I, I, I would have been nine when that audition came around, I believe. Yeah, I didn't really know much about musicals. The only musical I really knew of was Oliver. Because I sung mm. it once. Oh, and Rocky Horror Show for some reason. <laughs> oh no! Kudos for knowing Rocky. But like, if you're only going to know two musicals, that's pretty, a good two. Very, very different musicals. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, great ones, great ones. Yeah. Anyway, so I I did the audition and I just kind of rocked up and was having fun and I guess it was just lucky that I was a well-behaved kid and listened to instructions. I remember once they, uh, one day they said, oh, tomorrow when you come in, can you bring a pencil and a notepad? I said, cool. And the next day I came in with a pencil and notepad and I was the only one that remembered. And I said, so what's the notepad and pencil for? And they said, oh, nothing. Well, they were just testing to see if, you know, Uh we could take on instruction and, you know, do homework basically. Yeah. And, and um, that was it, I guess. I think I waited after the final audition i think it was like a good five or six months before oh i got a call i kind of forgot about the audition and mum woke yeah. me up one day she's like hey you got it and i was like what i don't what are you talking about I'm gonna be in love never dies i was like oh cool and i didn't really <laughs> what's love never dies <laughs> oh i knew i knew like, the, what, like that that was what i was auditioning for yeah. but that was it, and I kind of go from there. I um, I went and bought uh, the Phantom of the Opera movie, the one that has I can't remember the actors that are in it, but it's not a not the live production with Ram. The Gerard Butler, um, yes, Emmy Rossum one, yeah, yes. Watched that and loved it. It was so cool, mm. but I haven't seen a live production of, of the Phantom of the Opera. But I I got to see that that film and get an idea of what was happening there, oh. and uh, and then yeah. Flew to Sydney and lived up there for a month and began rehearsals. Wow. So th- this was your first kind of knowledge of Phantom of the Opera was through being cast in this. You weren't previously a fan or... No, I, I mean, I like with certain pop culture things, you recognise symbols and lines and yeah. melodies. And so stuff. yeah, so re- you were aware re- of it. I, well, the main thing I recognised was the mask. Yeah. The mask was like, oh, the Phantom. Oh, okay. So... Then what was the rehearsal and production process like for you as a a young performer? I'm assuming in the UK, when you have young performers in a professional show, there's a team and you kind of go on rotation. I'm assuming it's the same in Australia because there are laws about how much a young performer can work. Yes, absolutely correct. There were five of us, five of us boys. Two of them had just come off Mary Poppins uh, and two of us, including myself, 
it was our first production ever and one other boy was from Queensland all the rest of us were from Victoria um, they brought this boy George from Queensland he was the he was the oldest so for me and this one young boy this was our very first experience with anything like this you know mm. chaperones directors cast music directors what a whole rehearsal looks like and I mean a typical day would be we'd wake up in the hotel we'd get on a bus and we'd arrive at the rehearsal studio and we'd uh, get signed in and we'd meet with our chaperones there would be two of them and I still remember them Dina and Jill they are the best people ever they taught me so much so shout out if they ever listen to this <laughs> I hope they because they taught me everything um, and then it would just be us five boys and these two chaperones and we'd sit we'd sit at the front and there'd be tables along behind us that had you know directors producers choreographers lighting designers costume designers because this show was from my understanding you know designed from scratch mm. basically all new costumes all new set so all these things were being developed as we were going along and it was cool and just bit by bit they'd bring up one boy to rehearse this section and then they'd move to another section and then they'd bring up one of the other boys and then we'd go back and learn what the other boys learned during mm. that day and it was just so much fun just doing constantly you know going and have a sing with someone or being up on stage while well, the the floor with all the adults and and having fun with them i remember one time there was a ladder involved my i think i was 10 at the time oh i might have been nine my, my anyways my child brain thought oh i'm gonna climb that ladder and not really thinking that oh this could be dangerous and so as soon as i started climbing everyone was like because no, 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 if i fell yeah i mean yeah remember more jack lyle in 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 love never dies true True. And so then of those five boys, how did it come to be that you were the one in the recording? Were you picked for that or was it just fluke that the night they were set to record was the night you were on? It's a very funny story. One night after a performance, I think on the PA, they, they said, uh, can, uh, maybe it wasn't over the PA, but I was told, oh, after the show, you're going into stage management to have a meeting with your parents. Straight off the bat, I was like, oh, I'm getting fired. Cool. <laughs> Damn. I've just lost my job. What have I done? What did I do? I had no idea. And it was then they, they said, no, we're filming the show. And um, Simon Phillips, the who directed the show, would like you to be the Gustav. And I was like, oh, that was a very different conversation than what I thought it was going to happen <laughs> and what was going to go. And same thing then when I, you know, got offered the role to be in the show, I didn't really think that big of a deal of it. I was like, oh, cool, mm. they're going to film the show. And then, you know, a schedule came through of the, of, of the filming schedule schedule and there was a good I think there was like two or three days we spent doing shots because in in the show which you, you've watched there's close-up shots where the camera is actually up on stage yeah. you know follow, like they follow me through the maze and stuff like that 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 process took two or three days I remember and then at the end of the third day I think it was was when we filmed the the live show yeah with an audience and there was a big camera on a crane you know, coming over the audience and stuff mm -hmm. so yeah what was the question it was <laughs> It was uh, how come it was you rather than any of the other four kids? I have no idea why it was me. Uh, no idea. Because, um, I mean, I was the youngest and the shortest. So I think maybe that would have been why. I had super dark hair compared to the other boys. So maybe that was also why, because it was closer to, to Ben's hair, to the Phantom's hair. Yeah, yeah. I think that could possibly be a thing. I, I really... But it was it was a conscious choice. It was, I wasn't sure whether... Because obviously I, from watching it, I, 
can see that it's a mix of a filmed performance to audience and then obviously as you say they specifically staged shots for the film but yeah. I wasn't sure whether you had been chosen to play good stuff for the film or whether they were just they had the filming schedule and they were like okay this is the night we're going to film with the audience oh okay well Jack's on that night so he's going to be your Gustav. Yeah, right no I, I do believe it was a, a conscious choice I'm not 100% sure on who the choice was made by but I was told I think that it was by Simon oh, Phillips. Well good for you. I know I don't I don't know why I'd I got chosen. To... Well, look, I mean, I don't, I didn't see any of the other kids, but I think you were really good in it. So thank you. I appreciate it. Um, it's an insane part. It's an insane part for a child. Do you think, I mean, oh, maybe you didn't realize at the time because you don't when you're a kid, but when you look back now, yeah. do you hear the, the vocals for that part and think that's an insane part for a child? Well, it's an insane part for me now. <laughs> <'Cause> I, <laughs> that's for sure. Being 21, nearly 22, I don't think I vocally would be able to sing it. But back then it was... Yeah, I don't. It wasn't an issue because that's just. Yeah, you just take stuff at face value as a kid, don't you? But I watched it and and I I was struck firstly by how much time you spent on stage. Seems like an awful lot of stage time for a young performer. But also just the the complexity of the vocal part is madness. I don't know what Andrew Lloyd Webber was thinking writing a part like that for a child, knowing well, that that it would need to be played by several children over however period. If you thought that was crazy, have you seen the live theatre production of the School of Rock and those kids playing those instruments? Yes. Yeah, that is insane. I, I saw that actually with Michael. We watched it on Broadway together a few years ago. That is insane. And they play their own instruments as well don't they yeah i'm a guitarist as well and i was watching i watched the closing night here in melbourne and i was just watching the young boy playing the guitar i I mean i was watching all the kids play their instruments but the young boy playing that guitar doing such an awesome solo i was like i've probably been playing the guitar the same amount of years as him, maybe a little bit more. It's so unfair. Why can't I do that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just a matter of, I don't know, uh, well, I mean, talent's a big thing and spending time. It's spending time on the craft. And obviously these mm. kids have a lot of both. Yeah. And I guess it, if the support's in place to nurture that as well. Exactly. Maybe Andrew Lloyd Webber isn't crazy. Maybe he's just really good at tapping into talent that's there and finding finding the kids or finding the people who can find the kids yep. to make his vision real. Yep. I think you might be right. For sure. Maybe. Because, yeah, man, maybe he is crazy. Though. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> maybe he's both. I think a lot of the most talented I, I, people I do probably crazy, are a bit. Crazy in a good way. Like, yeah, 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 for sure. I don't mean crazy, crazy. For sure. I might get a call from them later. Oh, what did you say? struck off every list now so going back to love never dies were you particularly aware i mean i'm I'm assuming probably the the adult cast and obviously the creative team in australia will have been aware of i'm going to say the show's complex production history in the uk the fact that it 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 had been quite a bumpy ride over here was that something that you as as one of the young performers were aware of or did it not really hit your radar i knew that it was done in London, in in the UK, because I would listen to the album to help me learn some of the songs, because some of the songs Mm. were similar. Some things got changed, lyrics and stuff like that. But I guess, yeah, no, I was never aware of, I guess, the complex history of it, um, as you say. I definitely got in trouble because I was listening to that cast album recording and had seen clips and stuff. And I remember one rehearsal saying, oh, is this, you know, going to be in in the show? I, I think I remember seeing... In the UK version, there was like circus performers, like like trapeze people, like swinging mm. across the stage or something. And I was like, "Oh, when are the trapeze people gonna come in?" And they're like, "That's no, Jack. That's wrong. we're not doing no. that bit." Not doing that. I was like, "Okay, 
cool. But no, I didn't really have a have a clue. I was I was a child. I was just like, oh, cool, no worries. Well, I guess that's good though because then it, it's not going to put the pressure on you because I think it, it must there must have been quite a lot of pressure on the cast in Australia and the production team in Australia. I think knowing I that imagine. it hadn't gone well over in yeah. the UK. I mean, I don't know whether you ever whether it, it kind of got as far as Australia, but over in the UK, some of the reviews were calling it paint never dries. Oh, because that's... the people it was it was the the original version of it. So from the concept album that you would have listened to, I guess was slated quite heavily. I didn't see it. I never saw it in London. But it was quite badly reviewed and to the point that they shut the show for, I think, three or four days and completely reworked it and then reopened. And it got much better reviews the second time round, I have to say. So, yeah, it was it was quite a a tricky start to the show's journey over here. So, um, yeah, I was curious as to how much of that had kind of hit the radar in Australia. I mean, I'm I'm assuming the production team certainly would have known that that would have happened over here. But clearly I mean, that, that didn't hit your radar, which is probably a good thing because that, that would be a lot of pressure for a, a young kid. But even if I was aware, I probably, like I've been saying, I was a 10-year-old, I wouldn't have really understood the pressure of it. I would have just yeah. thought, oh, we're going to go and do a show, we're going to sing some songs for some people and they might clap at the end. That was all I really thought about back then. Like my favorite part of the show was Beauty Underneath and then yep. the Bowser. I love the Bowser. Yeah. It's cool. Like, oh, hi, thank you. I don't know why. Maybe that's very um, egotistical of me. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think when you're a child, you see things in a completely different way. And I think, yeah, you feel the pressures differently. And I think probably thinking about the show as a whole for, for a young performer, I mean, the Beauty Underneath is a brilliant number. It must have been so much fun to be part of because it's the role of Gustave is so central to that number. Yeah. And it's, it's so different from the rest of the show as well in terms of yeah. style. Absolutely. Um, it's so dark in there. It's very dark and smoky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. It's probably a lot more fun to watch actually than to be stuck in the middle of with all the mirrors and the smoke and trying to find your way around on stage. Nah, it's so much more fun on stage. Absolutely. I mean, yeah? I've watched, I've only watched Love Never Dies, I think maybe three times. The opening night at the theatre in Sydney, I can't remember the theatre, and in lockdown when Andrew Lloyd Webber released it on mm-hmm. YouTube for 48 hours, I watched it again there. And, I mean, yeah, you watch it, and as you said, it's a cool spectacle to see, but it was so much fun on stage because there's, you know, yeah, the creatures in those those mirrored prisms and... Um, there's a guy on a big bicycle and a, like a dinosaur skeleton walking around. Like it was just so cool mm. because to me it was just a big play date because I knew all these people, um, all yeah. these adults, like seeing them dressed up. Like you don't often see a lot of adults dressing up and playing to that extent. Yeah. So for kids seeing that, like hanging around adults that are so fun, not that adults aren't fun, but I think you get what I mean. It was yeah. just so cool making funny faces and trying to scare you. And it was just so much fun. So yeah. I, I definitely say on stage was, a, is more enjoyable for me. Okay. Scary. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can just, imagine. Just because the, the, you know, the, the stage is turning in multiple directions. There's towers, yeah. there's people. If you knock into something or fall over the show. Well, this is the thing, particularly in, in a number like Beauty Underneath, it it looks like you're just running in between stuff, but that's all going to be really heavily choreographed, isn't it? Because if you stand yeah. in the wrong place, you're going to fall down a hole or something's going to smack into you. Or But also because as you are still a child, you're under the responsibility of 
I mean, the chaperones, the stage manager, I'm not sure the hierarchy of, you know, who's responsible if something goes wrong. Mm. But when you're an adult, like, you are your own person and you have your own responsibilities. But as a kid... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one wants to break someone else's child in the middle of a show. If I was to walk out the stage door at the end of the day and was missing a tooth, parents wouldn't be very happy. Wouldn't be very happy. Although in saying that, there has been an instance where I walked out a stage door not the same as when I walked in. Oh, see, now you have to tell me. I'm really intrigued. This is very, very, very... I don't know if many people know this or if I've told it, but if you watch... Uh, it's in the first act, the the song Look With Your Heart with, with Christine and Gustave. Mm. And Christine sings to me and she, she wiggles my nose. She wiggles the bridge of my nose up here instead of, like, there. And people... I, I, I listened to another podcast the other day because I was like are people talking about Love Never Dies on podcasts this is cool and they mentioned that they're like oh there was a funny mistake that happened with the actors you know they accidentally got the kid's eye and the truth is the actress Anna O'Byrne who plays Christine my mother would have to wiggle my nose on my bridge because I was notorious for getting many many blood noses on a regular basis and there was a show where she wiggled my nose a little too hard and I got a blood nose oh mid-show. Yeah. Luckily, luckily, I wasn't on stage, but it was not long after I got off stage. Luckily, I don't believe they had to stop the show, but they had to get the understudy who was there to quickly get into his costume and, and jump on stage. Oh, God, of course, because they presumably have to have like a backup Gustav at every there, show. Yes, every show there would be a backup Gustav. And that backup Gustav, they don't so just he had, in... Did he have to go on while you had your yeah. nose dealt with? Yeah, absolutely. I was very lucky I didn't get any blood on the costume because that would have been a nightmare and a half. Yeah. Um, I was very, very skillful like that. But yeah, the, the alternate Gustav had to get dressed quick, get on for the next scene and, and figure out where where we were in the show. God, better so to was... be the Gustav. So did you have to back up Gustav for other Gustavs in part of the rotation? So yeah, the always. backup was one of the five. So there was always uh-huh. two of the five of you. Exactly. So whenever we were a backup, we, we were on stage twice. Uh, in video underneath, the monkey that's in the cart that does that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Gustavs. Oh my well, god, inside info. I'm, yes. Always a stuff. I'm not sure if I was allowed to say that, but that's fine. I don't think it's that big of a deal. <laughs> well, I think by this stage, I, what are they gonna do? They know. can't fire you. You're not in the show anymore. That's true. And uh in the second act, um, we'd have to put on like a bald cap and be like a pinhead. That's what the the character was called, a pinhead. And we'd have to Oh, okay. Up. Yeah. In the when Christine's looking for Gustav. Yes, that's, that scene. that's that. And then yes. and she grabs someone who she thinks is going to be Gustav and it's actually just someone else who's short. Yeah. I, is that I don't know if that was I think they may have used uh one of the supers. So as well so as well as the Gustav cast there was um another child cast. I think back then they were called supers and it was just, you know, every show 10 kids and there would be about four groups and they would play the other little characters in the show. Uh, like okay, the- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Our dressing room was always just full of kids, <laughs> just lots and lots yeah. of kids. They would also dress up as the pinheads and stuff. So I think <gasps> they may, in the filming, they may have That's used really one. interesting. Thing. I'm going to watch those scenes back now and see if I yeah. can. Oh, there's a Gustav. There's, there's a Gustav. No, no, they never show any of these Gustavs. I don't it's like, where's Wally? Where's Gustav? Where's Gustav? Exactly. Where is Gustav? <sighs> That's really interesting. And so when you watch back now, you said you've watched it back a couple of times. How yes. how do you feel watching watching the show now? How do you feel if you're out and about living your life and you hear something from the show? What, what does that do for you now? The last time I watched it would have been, yeah, the one in lockdown when it was on YouTube. 
Um, I do have to watch it again because my girlfriend still hasn't seen it. So we may have to, we may have to watch it and then I'll have to get her to listen to the podcast. So I will be watching it again soon. But this, the last time I watched it, as soon as it starts, and it's got the big... Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Tears. Tears everywhere. Tears <laughs> everywhere. Because I just have, as soon as I hear that, I just have all these such like powerful, vivid memories just yeah. back into my brain. Like I can literally feel myself sitting on the staircase ne right near the side stage door with all the kids waiting to go side stage to get on. And mm -hmm. I'm sitting there with the chaperones and, and one of the lighting technicians would show us a magic trick or something before he had to go up to his spotlight and... Like just all these memories, all these, you know, scents as well. Like there's this smell that is always backstage. I think it's like sage, like burnt sage or mm. something like that. I just have so many memories come back because that was such a huge part of my life. I was, that was, it was a good year and a bit of my life. Just this show, this music, these songs, like it was crazy when I, yeah, I just I heard it and just started crying. And I was just sitting in the corner of the couch. Mum and dad were over there. They knew I was crying, but I think they were letting me like have my. Oh well, you you know you were with your folks at least. It's not like you were yeah. with a bunch of people who didn't know you, and you had to just kind of be very stiff up a lip no. about it. You can just yes, no, I just let it go. <laughs> I let it go, and then an interval came. And I was like, "Let's go, let's do it again." <laughs> let's get... <laughs> right, right to the end. It's uh, oh. it is it is lovely to rewatch every now and then, but yeah, I didn't watch it for a long time because I was, you know, who likes watching themselves or yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff. So, but while another thing about like revisiting the show when I was studying musical theatre during during COVID, I actually did this one of the songs from Love Never Dies as like an assessment. I did Why Does She Love Me, the song that Ralph mm -hmm. sings back to. Yeah, I love that song, and then I think I ended up using it for an audition last year as well. So there's there's there are times where where this show does does make like a full circle moment and it yeah. comes back like uh, the phantom of the opera is playing in melbourne at the moment and a good friend of mine who i've known for years is playing meg jury the woman who essentially in the future tries to drown me spoiler alert <laughs> um and when i went and saw her and i saw her afterwards there's actually a few members in that cast who were in love never dies and oh. i spotted them and said, hey how you doing and they're like hi i was like you don't you don't recognize me. I mean, you, you look quite different, um, to be fair. I mean, imagine Gustav with a with a mustache and a goatee. Doesn't doesn't seem right, does it? No, no, it doesn't. So they didn't recognize me, and they were like, "Oh, which one of the Gustavs were you?" I was like, oh, "I'm Jack," and they go, "Oh my God, Jack, how are you?" And they they, yeah, they yeah. remember which good like you know they remember the Gustavs, but which one are you? Because you look all so different. Yeah. So you're still working in musical theatre now, studying musical theatre? Where where has uh, your life taken you since Love Never Dies? Well, I, I mean, a, a drastic turn after the age of 13. I did musicals um, two years continuously after Love Never Dies. I did Chi Chi Bang Bang and um, Pippin, the um, Beauty and the Beast, all, all sorts of shows. And then when I got to like a teenager, there weren't really many roles I could play. So mm. I didn't really want to stop performing because I love it. So I moved into yeah, commercial music and and learning the guitar and um, yeah, becoming a musician. And then when I turned, I think it was like 16 or 17, I saw um, a musical theatre group where I was studying acting, sing You'll Be Found from uh, Dear Evan Hansen. Mm -hmm. And I just heard a group of people sing harmonies again. And I was like, oh yeah, I think I've got to go back and get back into musical theatre. And then from then on, I studied it. I don't know, I think it's been like six years since I've 
like get, gotten back into musical theatre. So now mm. it's just a, a matter of, you know, auditioning for things and, and waiting for the right role to come along. Oh, well, look, best of luck with that. I hope it goes well for you. you. I'm sure it will. From from Thank that you. one performance of yours that I've seen <laughs> 10 years ago, 12 years ago, um, <laughs> I'm sure things will go very well for you. Before we finish up, do you have a favourite unloved sequel movie that you would like to recommend for me and Michael to add to our list? I do. I've been thinking long and hard. Um, do you mind if I give you two and you can choose from the yeah, two? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. So I, I, I figured I'd stick with something musical-like uh, for mm-hmm. my first one, and that's Grease 2. That, do you know what? We're going to be covering that one very soon, actually. So very good. keep your ears so. peeled for that. All right, I will, I will. And uh, a comfort movie of mine, because I love Adam Sandler, is Grown Ups 2. Okay. I don't think that's on the list at the moment, but it's definitely one that we can look at for maybe later in the year. Brilliant. Thank you. And where can our listeners find out more about what you're up to? Can they follow you on social media? Yes, they can. Uh, on Mainly on Instagram, Jack Lyle Music, L-Y-A-L-L music spelt like the English word. Um, <laughs> that's kind of really where I, I, I put all my stuff. If I ever announce anything, it tends to go on, on to Instagram. So Brilliant. follow me there and, and keep, keep some eyes peeled. Listen to some videos of me singing as a 21-year-old now. It's very different to Little Soprano Jack. Well, look, thanks again. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you, but thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you very much, Claire. I've had a lovely time. Thank you so, so much. Oh my God, I am so jealous that you got to have that conversation with him. He seems like such a nice guy. Well, you need to stop going on vacation and leaving me to do the interviews because he was was such a nice guy and it was a really interesting chat and I found it really insightful talking to him actually and those little snippets of kind of behind the scenes stuff that you didn't realise. And actually, I was listening to a podcast. I I have gone quite a deep dive for the show. I was listening to a podcast episode about the show today and the the couple in the episode were talking about the thing that Jack said about when she tweaks his nose. Yeah. And how in the video it looks weird because it looks like she's like grabbing him by the eyeballs. And the guys in this podcast are saying, oh, my gosh, you know, she just basically pokes him in the eye and then sings, uh, look with your heart and not with your eyes. And it's, that's because she's basically just blinded him. And you see, we know why, because we've got all that background intel. Yeah. Because if she tweaked him on the nose, he'd have bled all across the stage. So there we go. I did like the fact that he called it a blood nose and not a bloody nose. And then that's an Australian thing. I know. I didn't didn't query that with him. I guess that must be an Australian (laughs) thing rather than a nosebleed. It's like, okay, a blood nose, that's a thing. I might start calling it that. I call it a bloody nose. I've got a bloody nose. Bloody nose. Nosebleed. Anyway. Um, So, yeah. So I, I... he was fantastic to talk to. He was, but thank he was you, so Jack. good in the show. All of the performances. Yeah, thank you so much, Jack, um, for giving us your time because it was a really interesting chat. The other bit of performance that I want to single out yeah. is Anna O'Byrne in her performance of the song "Love Never Dies." The peacock. Settle. That song for me. Yeah. Now look, I want to talk about that Ooh, as well because so it is pretty. notoriously bad luck. Notoriously bad luck to have peacock feathers on stage in the theatre. Is it? And I realised that that. most... Yes! Yes! Well, this is something that I've known this for years because I might have mentioned once or twice in previous episodes, I used to work in theatre. So... um... (laughs) 
and I used to do part of that where I used to give like theatre tours now and then and audiences uh, people coming on tours love to hear like weird little theatre traditions they like to hear about the origins of various because the theatre is a very superstitious place but one of the the big superstitions in the theatre is peacock it's really bad luck to have peacock feathers on stage because they say that the eye on the feather is represents the evil eye of the devil obviously this superstition dates back quite a long time when people thought that the devil could possess a peacock feather so the fact that in a show within a show they've covered the stage in peacock feathers and I, it must have been a choice because whoever designed that must have known that you don't put peacock feathers on stage or it must have been a creative choice but, or it might just not be a thing in australia it might be a tradition in but England. someone from but someone from the uk would have gone if it wasn't something they were deliberately doing would have gone oh my god we can't use that many peacock feathers it's a thing and was probably like I wasted 20 minutes on the last one. I'm not even going to point out what's wrong with this set because I haven't got any more. <laughs> Maybe. These people <laughs> feathers have cost me so much I can't change them. No, I thought actually that was quite an interesting design choice because yeah. obviously within the context of the show, because it all goes to shit. She goes out onto stage covered in peacock feathers. Spoiler alert, she's dead by the end of the show. Oh. There we go. Oh, Don't wear peacock feathers on stage. That's probably the link then. That's probably the link to the movie why she got I think that's probably what it is. But I found that really interesting that she was absolutely, the whole stage was covered in peacock feathers. But her performance changed my opinion of the song. I have never liked this song, Love Never Dies. It puts me to sleep. It's so boring. It's so repetitive. I've heard various versions of it. He used it originally. It was in The Beautiful Game because he, he wrote it for Love Never Dies. Love Never Dies never happened. So he used it as a melody for one of the songs in beautiful game and then love never dies happened so he put it back in and i've heard the t- both versions of it from the two shows and i don't like it in either because it, i just find it really dull and then i watched her performance of it and i still find it very dull when i listen back to the soundtrack i, I tend yeah. to skip it because it does nothing for me but watching anna o'burn's performance of it it just really changed the tone of the song and rather than it being a very floaty like very romantic love never dies a hopeful song It seemed to me, it came across to me as a very, like, no matter how much you try and kill it, love never fucking dies. You can't get rid of this shit. And it completely changed the tone of the song for me. And it made me really appreciate it in that light because you can see, like, she wants the love to die. She's not happy that this love won't go away. It's, you know, you can try and get to the other side of the world. You can put it to the back of your mind for 10 years and then suddenly, ta-da, it's back whether you like it or not and it's going to fuck up your life. Yeah. And that was the reading I got from her performance of this song. So I want to put a shout out to that because I, it was really impactful on me because I find that song so turgid in so every would, other what, form. Other what would you say your favourite song of the show is? My favourite songs in this show, yeah. I like the quartet version of Devil Take the Hind. It took me a little while to warm up to 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 the the duet version, and this is the same thing. It's it's the one day more thing where you've got lots of voices going on. You've got themes from earlier on in the show coming back, culminating in this key moment, and I really like that. Devil Take the Hindmost is a weird song in itself. I don't like the original version of the song in this show because it's just the two guys willy waving, being complete assholes. Um, musically I like it and I think it's weird to pick a phrase that no one's ever heard of and use it so much in a song when the meaning of that phrase is so important to the song and I had to go off and google what the fuck does devil take the hindmost 
means. What does it mean? It, it's basically every man for himself. Okay. You will take the like the path of least resistance. You will take the path that, that benefits you the most and to hell with everyone else. So it, when you know that, it makes sense of the song. But I just found it really weird that he wrote this song that you have to Google the lyrics to to understand the song. But when it comes back later and you've got Madame Jury comes into it, you've got Gustave comes into it, and it's all leading towards this moment when she's about to sing Love Never Dies. I really liked that moment. What was your favourite? I like the beauty underneath. I thought it was fantastic. It's very not... Yeah, it's very... that would be my other favourite, but I knew you would pick that one, so I thought I'd leave that one for you. And I like it most of all because of Jack. When he's singing the yes. um, harmony from, uh, from Phantom of the Op, Eric, the Phantom, is singing the beauty underneath. It's just the most amazing... It blows my mind, even with the soundtrack, the layering just kind of, it's just a mm. beautiful thing and I just think it's the way Phantom of the Opera's music is so 80 sound I felt like this song lent into that more than any other song within the show yes this is the most phantom like song yes of any of the songs in Love Never Dies and it was very much for me it represented the Phantom of the Opera theme it, it fulfilled yes. that role in this show the only thing I would change is the beginning because the beginning of the West End production, the beginning of the Australian production, are very different. They started it off like yes. they're returning to the fairground where the all this has happened. They tried to try to copy the format for as Phantom trying to go that period of time back in time, and he returns. And I'm mm. glad they didn't do that with this production because I'm just like they did that in Phantom. But how I really yeah. felt like they should have started this, they should have started this thing with maybe Christine and Raul, Raul, yeah, that's his name, arguing on their wedding night about, you know, about how she should give up singing now and she becomes a wife and a house mother. And then she, yeah. she's been given this independent. She leaves, goes to the theatre, finds the Phantom in the ruins, and then the curtains close yeah. and then reopens and goes 10 years later. That's how this show should have started. That would make more sense. 100%. That would make sense, and that would clear up a lot of those plot holes. I mean, they in the in the West End original version in the concept album, there is a bit where the Phantom mentions that Christine came to him before she married Raoul. I'm assuming yeah. there's not much time between the end of Phantom and them getting married. It must have all been quite quick, particularly if she's then going to pass off Gustav back as Raoul's child. Yeah, back in them days, like I would say, like proposal married week. At the very most, it wasn't like this big thing, especially in the 18th century. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. couldn't. They couldn't. And after all of that trauma, it would deed. be like, "Come and get me. Let's just get married and put it behind yeah. us." Yeah. Um, yes, and and but that got cut for the Australian production, and so that's why there's this kind of thing where I was watching it, thinking, "Well, how did this happen?" And I think a prologue, like you've suggested, would have made much more sense of it. And a really um, simple. Stage. I agree that the you could have just had like rocks and ruins of the burnt-out theatre. She goes to him, she goes, mm. and then, you know, and that could have been it. And then the curtains open up and we're in Coney Island. It could have been a really simple yeah. stage swap. It would have been summed it all up and it, people wouldn't have an issue with what's going on in this show. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that would have worked. And I agree that I, I found the beginning a bit, I don't mind the song till I hear you sing. Yeah. But I found it a strange choice to open the show. Yeah, I found it. I really like the music of this show. I've I've listened to it a few times since I watched the show, and I've really enjoyed listening back to it. But watching it as an audience member, 
I found it a little bit sluggish. And I think I agree with the reviews that say the issue is in the book, the story, the the narrative is the problem. The performances are great. The music is by and large great. The design is great. But the story is just a bit. Mm. And there's so much there are so many like there's no subtlety in this show. There's, you know, Gustav runs in. Mummy, I had a terrible dream that a crazy lady kidnapped me and was going to drown me. Oh, okay. So let's keep an eye out for that happening later on in the show. Meg does her whole thing in um, Old Friend, which is another song that I really like, because, again, it's got that kind of many voices doing counterpoint. And she drinks to happy endings. And you think, well, that ain't going to happen. She comes in from at the beginning of Act Two into the bar with Raul and talks about, oh, I I like to go down to the water and just drift away and let the water wash over me. And these alarm bells are ringing. They're not subtle. That that kind of uh, penny drop moment for the Phantom when he realises that Gustav is his son, is it's painful. You can almost feel the bricks landing on his head because it's so heavily played. And actually in the Australian cast recording, it's much more subtly done. They've changed the transition between those two songs, between Beautiful and The Beauty Underneath. And he doesn't do that that whole um he's 10 years old oh my goodness 10 whole years thing that is in the video you know the bit i mean yeah yeah yeah. my acting is not quite up to the same standard as as his in the cast recording they use the phantom theme to transition so uh gustav starts playing the theme yeah. And then he sings it and then Christine sings it from off stage, and then it transitions into Beauty Underneath, which is much more natural feeling. But I just I found it a bit clunky. The the characters, they're all just dicks, aren't they? Is the, is is another well, issue I have with this the show. show. Not as dicks. much though. They're, oh, no. they're not as bad as in the first show. The only character with any sort of redeeming qualities in in Love Never Dies is Gustav. And I think that's primarily because he's 10 and hasn't had time to become an arsehole yet. Pretty sure after the events of this show, he is getting fucked up. Part three, part three for the cup. Yeah, Gustav's emo years. (laughs) Yeah, it's just my big issue. The misogyny of this show is appalling. It just, it stinks. We've got the Phantom giving off major incel vibes the whole way through. Like he was weird in the first show. He was obsessive. He was controlling. He was, there were red flags all over the first show. You get to this one and it's like, oh, I love you so much. I can't, my life is not complete till I hear you sing once more. Oh, you have a son. Well, then you will do what I say or I will kidnap him. What the fuck? No, that's not how you get a girl to like you. But in the first film, he was saying to the theatre editors, do what I want, I'll start killing everyone. So it's in his pattern. Yeah, and he did. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. He was like, I'm not saying he was uh, perfect in the first show. But and then you've got Raul, who has gone from being a bit of a wet blanket in The Phantom of the Opera, but a nice enough guy. You, you, in The Phantom of the Opera, most people are rooting for Christine and Raul. And well, they, so you get the problem, ending you want. Though. And then by the. I think that's the problem. I think the problem was they wrote it for Christine and Raul to be the heroes, but everybody left want clampering for The Phantom. So. He gave absolutely, you the absolutely, and that's why that's this is the way it is. And yeah. so then they've turned Raoul into this complete bastard. He is just a bastard to Christine. He's treated her appallingly. He's made it her problem and her responsibility to deal with the fact that he has 
lost all of their money and they're in huge debt. He has, the two guys have this bet over Christine in Devil Take the Hindmost. They place this bet and they say, right, we're going to let her choose. But they don't let her choose because she's not aware of the stakes of her decision. So they, they place her entire future on a decision that she's making without full knowledge. She makes the decision to perform because she's been told that if she doesn't, he's going to kidnap her son. So she performs. But but you're saying that men are arseholes? That's a surprise. It's kind of like... Well, I'm definitely saying that the two men in this show are arseholes. And and then the women, you know, you've got... The Phantom is this... is set up as the tragic hero all the way through this story. And yet it's Christine who dies at the end. It's Meg who has to be the one who pulls the trigger after 10 years of psychological torment that, fair enough, a lot of it, I think, is self-inflicted. I'm not sure that the Phantom has necessarily encouraged her obsession with him. Yes, but I agree with that. She and Madame Jury have given everything they have into protecting him and helping him create this show for him. It's suggested towards the end of the show that Meg has prostituted herself to raise funds to to finance the freak show. And then all he has to say about it is, oh, well, we can't all be like Christine, which is then what pushes her over the edge and shots are fired and Christine's dead on the floor. It's just... It's a um, hot mess, and the the women are treated the, horrifically. The wrote, even if she prostituted herself, the Phantom wrote her bathing duties with quick change. That oh, should be fuck enough. Off. <laughs> that fuck should be off. enough. That song. Oh my god, that song is duties awful. on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> and with quick change. But not only that. That's enough for life. <laughs> A quick change act for fuck's sake. But this is the other thing that made me feel really bad for Meg because he's written, so he gave her bathing beauties. Yeah. But presumably this whole time he has had Love Never Dies written. It exists. She was, you know, two days before this this show happened, before Christine came, Meg was going to be in the leading lady slot and he was still going to send her out there to do fucking bathing beauty. Even though Love Never Dies existed. On the beach. (laughs) Love it. Because we can't all be like Christine. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We haven't even talked about the fact that the Phantom completely catfished them in the first place by sending a message purporting to be from Oscar Hammerstein that clearly wasn't him. I'm just looking forward to part three when Raul and the Phantom bring up Gustav in this 2.5 Five gay <laughs> two and a half men, men style. two and a half men style know. sitcom that would be awesome that's what i want to see next well let's hope they're better at looking after gustav than christine ever was that was the other thing that drove me potty she, in this oh, show. She just every 20 minutes right. christine's like shit my son where's my son <laughs> well if you were just fucking watching him you'd know where he was mm. and given that you just lost him half an hour ago why aren't you watching him a guy that's has true. just threatened to kidnap your son and you're, no, oh, no, I'm just going to float around and sing for a bit. And, oh, shit, where's my son? Why do you think he is, you dumb bitch? Exactly. Sorry, that was harsh. I'm sorry, Christine. You're not a dumb bitch. You're an underdeveloped character who has no agency. So what, what I will let you off that, that bit. But She's had a bit of a shitty life. Her dad died. She was brought up in a theatre. 
being forced to be a ballet dancer when she really just wants to be a singer, being groomed by somebody who's been watching yeah. her for the last 20 years, and then she's forced to marry the heroine of the last show, even though she, I don't think she's really in love with him. She's just like, we used to be childhood sweethearts, so I must marry him. <laughs> no. Yeah. I just, sorry, I just no. how it's just all of it's a bit. This is what I mean, though. The complete. She's supposed to be the star. She was supposed to be the star of both shows, and she has no agency. Every major decision mm. is made for her or without her. Every bit of her story, the whole way through both shows, mm. she either doesn't get to make the decision or makes the decision without being informed. Right. Um, she's very poorly treated as a character and I feel for her and that's the end of my feminist rant so on that note how many bathing beauties on the beach would you give <laughs> love never dies <laughs> so uh I'm I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it 2.5 out of five I'm gonna go straight down the middle because I know I spent a lot of this episode slagging it off because the bits that I don't like about it, I really don't like. But yeah. there's a lot in it that I like, and I want I want to give it a higher score than that. I think the people who worked on the show, you can see the work that's gone into it. Yeah. And I think those people deserve a, a higher score. But I think the book just pulls it down and makes it quite a mediocre show. And I think, you know, great performances, great design, great music, calm you can't polish a turd if if the core material <gasps> is not up to scratch no I, i'm not trying to be rude because i think it's a there's a lot in it that i love and i've been listening to it i've been listening to the music loads since i watched the show and i will continue to do after we've recorded i like the music and i'll probably watch the the recording again i'll probably watch it again at, at some point but i just that there's a lot wrong with it and i can't particularly when we're looking at it as a sequel, I can't get past that to give the bits of it I like the higher score that I think they are worthy of. If, how about you? You're so, going to score it high, aren't you? I fucking love it. I really liked it. I had a great time watching it. <laughs> Good. Look, I really liked it. I'm glad, that, I'm glad you do. I'm glad yeah. there are people that aren't as weird about all the stuff I don't like as I am. Yeah. So I would give it about three and a half Bathing Beauties, but I'm going to give it four and a half because I think Jack deserves his own bathing beauty because... Just an extra point for back for Jack. Oh, my Fair God. Enough. He just... As a kid... I can't stand kid actors. They irritate the shit out of me. The idea, my idea of hell is to watch Annie or something. Just kids on stage drive me... Great <laughs> me so much. But he's phenomenal in this. If you have to go and he watch is. this he show... Is. And you... Stuff for, this, for him, go and watch it. Because he's Watch such it. a talented... Listen to his part. His, I mean, it came up when I was talking to him. That vocal line is insane. Oh, it's phenomenal. So that's Love Never Dies for you. Listeners, please take a moment to rate us and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. And tell us what you thought of Love Never Dies. You can leave us a comment. You can email us on unlovedsequels at gmail.com and you can find us on all the socials at Unloved Sequels. So to next time, it's goodbye from me, Michael. And from me, Claire. Take care, guys. Bye! <laughs>